Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. A major part of being a physician is listening, not only to our patients and coworkers, but to the body itself. When the heart speaks, heart murmurs and carotid bruise. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Good evening and welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc. We often talk about listening to our bodies. Our heart has its own language and we need to pay attention. But first, a look at this week's Prairie Doc quiz question. The benefit of cardiac rehab is A, physical, B, emotional, or C, both. Viewers who call in with the correct answer will be entered into a drawing to win a copy of the book, The Picture of Health. Each of Dr. Holmes' essays, originally written for On Call with the Prairie Doc, comes with a wonderful accompanying photograph by Dr. Judith Peterson. We will announce the answer and the winner at the end of the show. Remember, you only have 10 minutes to get your answer in. We answer your questions about cardiology as they are called in or sent to us via Facebook or email. Call in questions to 1-888-376-6225 or send us an email to the address on the screen. Joining us tonight via Skype is Dr. John Wagner, interventional cardiologist with North Central Heart, a division of the Avera Heart Hospital in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And remotely via Zoom is Dr. Josie Tashira with Monument Health Heart and Vascular Institute in Rapid City, South Dakota. Welcome, I am so glad you could both join us and uh, have it remotely as South Dakota roads and weather. We're not uh, agreeing to have anyone in the studio with us here tonight, but I, I'm glad we were able to pivot and get you both here speaking with us uh, remotely with our technology we have going on. So thank you so much. So uh, Dr. Jose, would you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, uh, how long you've been practicing and what uh, your areas of interest are? Uh, sure. I was uh, <clears throat> born and raised in an island off the coast of Portugal. Uh, did my medical school in uh, Lisbon and then <clears throat> moved to New York and did my internal medicine in New York City and then my cardiology and then uh, electrophysiology at uh, the Board of Heart and Lung Center in New Jersey. So at that time, uh, I came to Sioux Falls and uh, was hired by Dr. Zawada for the USD and brought electrophysiology to the state because at that point there was nobody doing uh, electrophysiology in the entire state. Uh, subsequently, Dr. Mohammed and Dr. Olson then joined us, uh, you know, a little bit later on. So we then moved uh, to Rapid City. I have been here uh, <clears throat> for the last 20 plus years. 
we started a clinic called the Heart Doctors, and I got years ago sold to the Monument Health. Uh, I'm also have interest in lifestyle medicine, and I'm also board certified. Actually, took my boards last year, and it's my uh, going to be my next passion. Now that I'm winding down on my practice of cardiology right. and electrophysiology as well. Excellent. Wow, that you've have had an amazing life, and I'm glad to hear it was Dr. Zwada that uh, got you here. He was um, a mentor of mine and holds a very special place in my heart, and we were very sad to hear about his passing uh, this year. So thank you for uh, globetrotting and then settling in South Dakota. This is wonderful. All right. Well, Dr. Wagner, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your journey to Sioux Falls? Yeah, so I grew up in... Uh... Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then I went to uh, the University of North Dakota, both for undergraduate and my medical education. Uh, from there, I went out to Durham, North Carolina, and worked at Duke University Hospital for my residency in internal medicine. And then from there, I spent the last five years in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Cleveland Clinic, doing both my cardiovascular medicine fellowship, and then I did a year of coronary intervention and a year of structural interventional fellowship before moving out here to Sioux Falls. And uh, moved out to Sioux Falls in June and then started working with North Central Heart uh, since uh, August of uh, 2020. All right. Well, could you explain a little bit uh, what the interventional list part is? And are there different types of uh, cardiology interventionalists? There are. So there's uh, really three big areas now. There's one where a lot of us do coronary intervention, so putting in stents in the heart arteries. Um, then there's a peripheral intervention where you're intervening on uh, vascular disease in the legs and the arms and the neck, the carotid arteries. And then there's what's called structural intervention where you're really looking at uh, heart valve interventions, closing uh, atrial septal defects, patent foraminal valley, and so forth. So uh, kind of three different uh, subspecialties within intervention. All right, so that's structural, you're really uh, intimately familiar with murmurs and breweries and and the heart making all sorts of different noises. Yeah, no, they <laughs> absolutely. That's what I do day in and day out. Um, listening to heart murmurs, uh, you know, uh, which I think a lot of us do, but it's uh, pretty intimate with structural intervention. Yes, interesting. Well, that's fascinating. I think we've got a really. Um, depth and breadth of specialty here talking with us tonight. So I think this will be a very interesting uh, um, episode here. So I'm excited to dive into some of these questions. So uh, we do have a viewer that stated, sometimes they feel a heaviness in their arms, but haven't ever had any chest pain. Is there any chance that the arm pain could potentially be related to the heart? And is that something they should get checked out? I guess I could st start if uh, that's okay. Go ahead. So it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's possible that it could be related to the heart, but nonspecific. You should ask yourself, does any other symptoms occur with the arm heaviness? Do you get shorter breath? Have you had worsening fatigue? Does the arm heaviness happen with activity? Um, so some things to think about, but I think it would be uh, uh, you know wise to see a provider and go through those uh, those questions and 
any other history that puts you at risk for heart disease. Excellent. Yes, I definitely think there's a family history is always an important thing to take into consideration. But I always say if it's enough to get you concerned, it's a good enough reason to come in and be evaluated and have it checked out. I would rather reassure someone and say, nope, everything looks completely fine, than say, gal, I wish you would have come in sooner because now we're having a completely different conversation because a little problem is now a big problem. So. Uh, have you found that the sooner you get to treating these issues with the heart, the better the outcomes are? Are there um, kind of points of no return where, you know, the damage is done and there's nothing more that we can do to help? Have you seen that, Dr. Tashira? Yes, I think uh, the viewer brings a very important issue because uh, what we call silent ischemia. Uh, even if you don't have symptoms, but if you have severe coronary artery disease, you are at risk uh, even for sudden cardiac death. And if you have some symptoms you're not sure, then you have to be worked up and you know, clarify the issue. Do you have or don't have any serious issue? And if you have, you need to address. If we don't, then it's peace of mind. So I think these things cannot be uh, ignored and uh, let's not forget that uh, heart disease is still number one cause of death in this country in Western Europe. And half of those deaths happen suddenly. So uh, we don't have time to go back and uh, do a, a different approach. So we need to be very proactive and very uh, aggressive, making sure there are no issues, especially as uh, John mentioned, if there is family history, other risk factors and so on. Mm -hmm. Yes, and definitely, I know with your other passion, um, talking about the importance of lifestyle and dietary and health and exercise, what things can people do to help protect their heart from having problems or needing to talk to a cardiologist in the future? I, well, here's the good news. The good news is uh, atherosclerosis and coronary artery disease and uh, peripheral vascular disease is actually prevented and is actually reversible with just lifestyle medicine. Uh, it's not uh, widespread uh, used yet, but it will be because we really uh, now have the data that we can uh, not only, you know, treat heart attacks and strokes and peripheral vascular disease with the newest technology, we can actually prevent it. And the question is, would you rather have a heart attack and be treated the best possible way, or would you rather not have it? And, you know, obviously would better not to have it. And we have actually the knowledge and the know-how to actually prevent and reverse uh, uh, atherosclerosis and the heart disease. Excellent. Well, this kind of segues into the next question here. A caller from Custer asks, how effective are stents in preventing subsequent heart attacks? So now it's too late to prevent that first one, but what do we do about preventing number two? Uh, Dr. Wagner, do you have any comments on that? It all depends on why you're putting a stent in in the first place. So if you're putting a stent in because you've had a heart attack, it will decrease your risk for subsequent heart attack, but it also goes with taking your medications and doing uh, the lifestyle changes that we've been talking about. And so that's very important. 
if you had a stent placed just because you were having chest pain that was stable and you didn't have a heart attack, that's more to help with symptoms and it will be prevent a heart attack in the future. But if you've had a heart attack and you had a stent, it will help prevent future heart attacks down the road. All right, very yeah. interesting. So some stents are put in, you know, heat of the moment, there's having chest pain, having a heart attack, we want to stop that heart attack. And other ones are because they're having this kind of anginal symptoms where you say the heart's just having pain and irritated. So there's more than one reason to put a stent in? Yeah, no, that's right. So you have to, you have to understand the kind of spectrum of coronary artery disease, whether it's stable or unstable. The stable coronary, coronary artery disease is where you have this phenomenon where the artery is narrowed, but you're not having symptoms at rest. You're still able to do some activity, but when you do activity, you feel like your chest can be heavy or you get winded, but when you rest, it goes away and you're completely fine. And that's different to an unstable coronary artery disease where the you get pain at rest with doing minimal activity um, or where you find out through blood work or an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart where you've had heart damage. And when you're in that situation where you've already had a heart attack or it's very unstable, uh, the coronary artery disease can, can help prevent further issues down the road. In the stable situation, medicines actually help protect the heart just as much as stents do. But sometimes medicines don't work. And that's why we put in stents to help relieve symptoms. In that case, you're not really preventing a future heart attack. All right, so it's yeah, all, just, oh, go, go right ahead. I don't mean yeah, to. I just want to add, agree completely with John. Uh, if you are having unstable angina or you're having a heart attack, that's not the time to bring in the spinach. <laughs> you have to have uh, an intervention. And those interventions are absolutely life-saving. Uh, uh, what uh, the other side is in stable coronary artery disease. Now we have a lot of data and studies that uh, even lifestyle is actually better than an intervention. Excellent. Well, that's wonderful. Well, the health well, one does not exclude the other. It should do both. Exactly. Wonderful. So we'll go in here uh, talking about uh, the Helmsley Trust Foundation, which has given almost a half billion, with a B, dollars to benefit rural health care in seven Midwest states, including South Dakota. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt spoke with the members of the Helmsley Trust Foundation about the addition of EKG machines and other life-saving equipment in rural ambulances. South Dakota became the first state where it was completely a statewide guideline for STEMI heart attack patients. No other state went border to border doing the same, same guidelines, same protocols. And one of the other key areas of that grant was we provided um, 12 lead EKGs machines um, that remote transmit to hospitals and cardiologists too, that the paramedic and EMTs can dial in who they want, which hospital they wanted to go to. And they'll take the, the EKG reading of, of the heart and send it to the emergency room. And the physicians at the emergency rooms can determine what kind of heart attack the patient's having. And that's not only just a cool function to have to have an instant diagnosis going on there, but it, it helps um, speed up treatment. Um, many ways. If a patient is having this type of STEMI heart attack, 
they can divert to a more appropriate hospital where they can get the patient into a cath lab, or if they need an air ambulance or a helicopter evac, they can start ordering those type of things. So it gets the patient quicker to, to those cath labs. And getting a patient to the cath lab is key for survival and key for um, long, better long-term outcomes because the quicker they can open up that artery that's clogged and restore blood flow to the heart, the less damage you'll have. And with less damage, it'll be quicker rehab. Um, the outcomes will be better. There, there's, and there's just so much where, where it's, it's key to that. And what was really interesting, we saw improvement over STEMI survival over, over four years of that grant and still improving. From about 7.2% mortality for our STEMI patients to below, and our national average was about 6.3, 6 6.5%. So we were worse. And by the time the grant project was done, we were sitting at about 4% mortality. So we were significantly better than national average. Um, and that's, that's dedicated to, you know, everybody from EMS, 911, uh, the local hospitals and those receiving centers all saying, okay, yep, we're gonna get this protocol right. We're going to get past a hospital that can't take care of a patient. We're going to shave minutes off. And the, the testament to that is that our um, numbers from first medical contact, like so when EMS arrives, to getting somebody to the PCI center dropped significantly down to about 77 minutes. And that um, the American Heart Association recommends within 90 minutes. A gift this has been to connect our rural ambulances with the right healthcare center to improve outcomes for the patient. I remember actually when this first went into effect because I was working in Tyndall, South Dakota at a critical access hospital and it did change everything for our outcomes with patients and I was just so happy that we were able to get things going sooner for helping someone who's having a heart attack. Um, like Dr. Wagner, do you want to talk a little bit about the golden hour that we always talk about with uh, heart attacks and the importance of what happens in that first hour? Yeah, no, absolutely. So we always say that time is muscle. So when you're starting to have a heart attack, depending on the type, uh, the sooner you can open up that artery, the more of your heart muscle we can save. And, you know, we talk about less than you know, 90 minutes, but even newer data says less than 60 minutes can really help preserve the heart function and the amount of muscle that can survive during a heart attack. So the sooner the better. And that's why it's important to always listen to your body. And if you're concerned, contact your provider or call 911 if you're not feeling good, if you have to, um, because that's the most important thing is getting timely care. Excellent, thank you so much. Well, let's go back to some viewer questions because I know we have a lot for this episode. Uh, a viewer from Arlington, South Dakota states that they've had an irregular heartbeat for the past three years, and they wondered if that's something they need to be concerned about. Dr. Teixeira, do you want to yes, talk about uh, that? So irregular heartbeat um, is just a symptom. It could be caused by different things. Now, uh, some very benign, so some not so benign. So uh, the viewer needs to be checked and figure out what's causing the irregularities. And again, see 
if the patient has normal heart and has just primitive beats in the atrial, even the large chamber of the heart, uh, but everything else is fine, it's a benign situation. On the other hand, if patient is having uh, some other arrhythmias, you know, runs a paroxysm atrial fibrillation and so on, that puts a higher risk, including stroke uh, and so on. So uh, the symptoms has to be uh, clarified and we need to figure out what's causing what to know if it's going to be serious or not. And that's not something you can tell just by listening to the heart. You have to do like EKG or other tests. Absolutely not. But uh, the good news is we have the ability to document what's going on. So in the past, we did like 24-hour halters. Then we did 40-hour halters. Then we had like 30-day event monitors. Yeah. Now we have actually uh, implantable mm -hmm. uh, devices that could monitor your heart up to three years uh, just under the skin. And I have an old one <coughs> here. I'm not sure if you can see. Uh, there's a newer one, half the size, that we just inject actually under the skin and can monitor somebody's heart for about three years. So we can figure exactly what's causing the symptoms and now if it needs to be addressed or not. That is fascinating. That technology has just improved. I remember when the first pacemaker batteries came out, they were huge, and now they're just getting thinner and smaller and tinier every year. So wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this idea, the good old days, it's not true. Things are much better now. Technology is much better. <laughs> uh, and we have, you know, a lot more capabilities that we had even 10, 20 years ago. Yes, definitely. Life is good now. <laughs> All right. Well, some more questions here. A uh, woman from Mitchell has a granddaughter who is almost six. And the granddaughter uh, went to the doctor and they heard a heart murmur in her. And they're going to go in to get it checked out next week. And the grandmother wanted to know, are these heart murmurs generally serious in children? What should they expect going into next week's appointment? Dr. Sure. Wagner? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. So there's different types of murmurs, particularly in kids. Um, there's what we call innocent murmurs. A lot of those have to do with flow murmurs, uh, which is where kids' hearts are so strong and work so efficiently, blood moves through the heart so fast that you can actually hear it moving. And those tend to be benign, and a lot of times will go away as kids age, okay? Especially if they haven't heard it in the past, it's very common to hear a murmur or a new murmur between the ages of six and 10. and But those generally go away in the teenage years. I think it's wise to get checked out, but it be something uh, more serious potentially. Um, but if uh, the child's feeling well and otherwise not having any issues, more than likely it's just a benign, non-serious Some of the things they might do to evaluate that include an ultrasound of the heart, where they put a probe on the chest and take some uh, ultrasound pictures just to see how the blood's flowing and if there's any abnormalities. Excellent. And the yeah, ultrasound just, isn't painful. I mean, it's very, it's just this probe on the skin, so there's no poking. I mean, the worst part is the gel might be a little cool to the touch. I mean, usually they warm those up. Yeah, similar to like a, a ultrasound for, you know, when you go to the OB when you're having a baby, very similar. So no, nothing more invasive than that. So it's not going to be painful. They shouldn't be scared about having that done or, or anything no. there. So great. All right. Well, keeping on the 
topic of children. A viewer from Clear Lake wondered if increasing physical activity in kids would reduce their risk of having heart attacks and heart problems when they get older. So is what we're doing now with children going to impact them when they're grown up? Well, I can start the one. So uh, the answer is yes. Uh, the bottom line is this. So atherosclerosis is actually a pediatric disease. The initial uh, aortic streaks at the beginning of the plaque starts very, very, very early, although it's not going to cause you any trouble for several decades. Uh, and there is no doubt that if exercise were a pill, it would be the most effective pill ever invented in the history of mankind. Uh, but <clears throat> you should just exercise not only when you are a child, but you should continue throughout your life. And the American Heart Association recommends, you know, 150 minutes for regular uh, exercise or 75 minutes a week or more intense exercise. But the benefits are extraordinary, not only in preventing heart disease, strokes, cardiovascular disease, but also preventing, you know, type two diabetes, uh, decreasing the chance of getting many cancers, uh, osteoarthritis, and even depression and dementia. So exercise is a magical pill. It's just you have to do it. Uh, you can't buy on the pharmacy. Definitely. Yet. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> but you can get buy a gym membership, so wonderful. So how you were saying, how much exercise does it matter? That it does it all have to be in one chunk during the day, or or you know an hour of exercise, or can you break it up into twenty-minute segments, or what would you recommend there? You you can break it out. You can break it out. You know they say a minimum of ten-minute uh, intervals, but any form of exercise is absolutely uh, fantastic, and. Uh, you don't have to do it all at once. You, you actually better off spreading, you know, throughout the week. So if you do, you want to do 150 minutes, you know, you could do 30 minutes, you know, five days a week. Or, uh, but even during the day, you could do 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the afternoon or so, and spread it out. The benefits are still there. All right. So it's more cumulative. It doesn't have to be all, all or nothing. So. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, a gentleman from T stated that he was diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy a few years back and was told that it would be progressive and unfortunately inevitably cut his life short. Um, he wanted to know if uh, you could kind of comment on that and uh, if you agree with that prognosis and maybe explain to the audience what hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is because that's kind of a $5 word right there. Maybe John wants to start. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I can take that one. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, also termed HOCM, H-O-C-M, uh, is a disease where the heart muscle on the left side of the heart is thick, and it can block blood flow uh, going out of the heart. It can cause symptoms of heart failure, lightheadedness, and dizziness, and so on. Um, whether or not it can cut somebody's life short, it definitely can but there's varying uh, types of hokum and, and grades of severity. So that may not necessarily be uh, your case. I saw a lady well in her late 70s with hokum uh, just this past week, and she's doing fairly well. So it manifests itself in different ways. Um, so, so, that, so that's one thing. 
Uh, the other thing is that with medicines and even with surgery, if needed, uh, can also help uh, prolong life and help reduce symptoms as well. Uh, and then uh, uh, one of the risks with hokum is uh, the risk for sudden cardiac death. Um, and there are certain features related to hokum that put people at increased risk for sudden cardiac death. And a lot of times uh, we implant defibrillators to try to prevent that. All right, excellent. Well, speaking about defibrillators, I'm sure you've likely seen the automatic external defibrillator devices in many public places. But have you ever wondered what you would do if there was a cardiac emergency and you had to use one? Brookings Health System paramedic Wendy Long takes us through the steps of how to operate an AED. When you use an AED, if somebody goes unresponsive, first you call 911 so that you can get emergency services there as quickly as possible. The second, you'll assess your patient. Are you okay? Are you okay? If they don't respond to you, check for a pulse. If you're not sure how to check for a pulse, look to see if there's rise and fall of the chest. If you can check for a pulse, use two fingers, never your thumb. Your thumb can find your own pulse, so always use two fingers. Check on the side closest to you and check the carotid artery. Check for five seconds, but no more than 10. If you don't feel a pulse or you're not sure you feel a pulse, go ahead and start CPR until the AED becomes available. Adults will benefit from immediate defibrillation within the first 10 minutes. That is when the heart is most susceptible to the defibrillation. That is why we wanna call first for help before doing anything else so that if the AED is not readily available, somebody can bring it to you. There's a sign that says AED. It looks very similar to the heart with the lightning bolt for it. This is the common sign for AED. Look for this sign and you will find the AED. Most times they're in a glass case and a lot of times it says alarm will sound. This does not mean that emergency services is activated, it just makes an alarm. Although sometimes they could be connected to a 911 source. Never assume and always make sure that 911 has been called so that the patient can get best outcome possible. We're going to demonstrate the proper technique of how to use an AED. The first technique is turn it on. Then it will talk you through the entire process. Adult mode. Important. Remove all clothing from patient's chest. Pull red handle to reveal pads. Look at pictures on pads. Apply pads to bare skin exactly as shown in the pictures. Press pads firmly. Do not touch patient. Analyzing heart rhythm. Everyone clear. Press flashing button. Clear. Shock delivered. And that is as easy as it gets. You go start right back into CPR and you will do that for two minutes. The machine will count you down. Some of them will have a metronome so that you go at the proper rate, which is very handy because it's 100 to 120 beats a minute. And then it will tell you after two minutes is up to reanalyze your patient and see if it is a shockable rhythm. And if it is, it will charge up again and do the process all over. And if it is not, it will tell you to resume CPR. 
It is very easy to use an AED and you do not need any certain kind of training. All you need to do is follow the prompts. Just remember, when you are in a situation where you need to use an AED, call 911 first and then use the AED and CPR. I know the AED is one of the first things I start looking for when I'm anywhere in a public space. You know, I know airports, malls, I, I always kind of have a scavenger hunt to see if I can find one. Thankfully, I've never had to use one outside of training. Uh, but it's definitely been something that I look for, something my husband, who is an ER nurse, looks for, just so we're aware of where it's at. And it's incredibly simple to use. It's been designed that you know, grade school children can learn how to pick them up. There's literally pictures on them. Do what uh, the prompts tell you, and it's not going to send a shock if it's not appropriate. So they try to make it literally as easy for you as possible. It's usually like one button to push and, and it works. And that's a really important in trying to improve outcomes is that AED can really uh, save someone's life before EMS has a chance to get there. So have you uh, gentlemen had any instances where an AED really um, was crucial in saving a patient and that uh, good outcome that they've had? Yeah, yeah, I can go. Yes, uh, we've actually had uh, um, two cases uh, in Rapid where uh, one was at Y and uh, went to ventricular fibrillation. There was uh, actually a nurse there uh, exercising and she knew exactly what to do. And he did uh, wonderful, recover, no issues. Uh, his brain was fine. We ended up putting him at the fibrillator. There was another gentleman who was on the gym, and there was a similar uh, similar situation. Uh, so the external defibrillators are very helpful, and definitely uh, they save many many lives. All right, excellent. Well, talking about AEDs and heart attacks, uh, have you noticed that there's a difference in heart attack symptoms in men versus women? I know a lot of the education we have on symptoms and things to watch for have been studying men and that you know, women can sometimes present a little bit more subtly or, or differently. Are there things women need to watch for besides the stereotypical elephant sitting on my chest and pain into the left arm and up into the neck? John, I want to start? Yeah, yeah, sure. That'd be great. So, no, I think uh, not just men and women, but also folks who have different underlying health conditions like diabetes can also present differently. But looking specifically at men and women, uh, you know, women tend to present with uh, more fatigue, sometimes just short of breath when they exert themselves. Um, not as much the classic elephant on the chest, diaphoresis. And sometimes uh, they may even have what feels like reflux symptoms, burning in the chest and so forth. Um, but again, it's not just men versus women. If you have diabetes, uh, sometimes you can be asymptomatic or just feel very diaphoretic and not even have chest pain. So really listen to your body and know if something just doesn't feel right and you're not feeling up to par or you know something's wrong, I think it's important to 
at least call your provider or if you're really feeling bad, you know, go seek medical attention. Definitely. Yeah, I agree, I agree with John. Uh, the, women may present with atypical symptoms and it's a mistake to dismiss them because we're going to uh, miss uh, serious issues. Uh, women have developed you know, coronary events later in life, but after menopause, they pick, pick up the numbers and actually gets uh, uh, as, as bad as men or, or, or worse. So basically, it sounds like if you've got anything that could potentially sound like chest pain or heart related, you know, jaw pain, throat pain, bad reflux that's new or different or unusual for you. If you've got a concern, that's a good enough reason to get it checked out. Don't play chicken with your health and your heart. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Because the downside is, uh, is too big if you miss it. And it's okay to be checked and say you're okay. That's great. Uh, but if you miss the serious issues, then uh, it's not good. The outcome is not going to be uh, uh, what we want it to be. All right. Excellent. Well, another viewer is asking if there are benefits of taking a baby aspirin and what benefits would there be for the heart with that? Uh, Dr. Wagner? So that's kind of a loaded question, to be quite honest. Uh, it depends on why you're taking it. So if you have uh, known heart disease, if you have uh, diabetes or high blood pressure, um, you've had stents before or you've had strokes, taking a baby aspirin will help reduce future events such as heart attacks, stroke, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, if you're otherwise a healthy person, the data has been somewhat more uh, conflicting or there may not necessarily uh, be a clear benefit. Uh, but, you know, as I tell some of my patients who are especially older, if you have a family history and you have some other risk factors and you're healthy, a lot of times it doesn't necessarily hurt to be on the baby aspirin. All right, excellent. Well, next question regarding some lab tests. A viewer wanted to know more about the uh, cholesterol measurements. What's LDL, what's HDL, and what's the importance of all these numbers when you get a lipid panel? Dr. Teixeira? Uh, well, it's a very, very important question. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, high cholesterol levels is not good for you. There is no doubt that the bad cholesterol called the HDL, if it's high, it's just not good for you. Uh, the issue is uh, there is more to atherosclerosis than cholesterol. And for instance, if you have a chronic inflammatory state that we measure with a test called uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, if you have a high chronic inflammation, even if your LDL is low, you still have significant amount of uh, uh, likelihood of getting into trouble. So people say, oh, cholesterol doesn't help it. Well, it does help, but it's not the only factor. And in fact, um, we've come a long way on the study of lipids. And uh, you could even have a normal LDL, but if you have bad particles and you have too many small particles, especially the ones called LP little a cholesterol, then you're going to have a lot of cardiac events. 
So, but that does not uh, mean that the cholesterol does not need to be addressed and that does not mean that it's not important. It is, but it's not the only one. All right, and you use this in conjunction with other things. Uh, could you talk, uh, Dr. Wagner, a little bit like our risk predictors, the Framingham, or talking about like, uh, I know American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association has their risk predictors where you take the cholesterol and someone's age, risk factors, their blood pressure, their diabetes, you know, smoking, all those things that uh, can kind of predict their risk of having a heart attack in the next 10 years. Do you use those? Are they helpful? No, absolutely. We use them every time we see somebody in clinic. So it, it, cardiology is all about trying to reduce risk and prevent people from having heart attacks and strokes, you know, in the future. And so these risk scores can really help us tailor uh, preventative therapies, medicines, in addition to the lifestyle factors that we've been talking about and trying to reduce that risk. And uh, these scores, what they do is they kind of, they give you a percentage in, you know, in the next 10 years or throughout your life, what's your chance of having a heart attack? What's your chance of having a, a, a stroke or a cardiac arrest? And then it kind of guides us to have a discussion with the patient about what medications may help reduce that risk. Should you be on a statin medication, which lowers uh, cholesterol? Should you, be on, um, should you be on a baby aspirin? Uh, every day, which, which can also help reduce risk, and, and then kind of go from there based on symptoms and so on. So these, these risk factor, these risk prediction scores can be very helpful. And, uh, you know, when you go see a cardiologist, you should talk to them about your specific risk when you see them. So I think it's really important to know. Yes, medicine's very individualized. I don't like cookbook medicine where you do the same thing for everyone regardless. I always like to take each individual person's history and risk factors and you know what's going on with them. I treat the patient in front of me, not a disease and say everyone with this has to have X, Y, and Z done. I mean, we have lots of studies to say this is kind of best practices and then you still have to kind of optimize it for each individual patient here. All right, next question here. A viewer from Sioux Falls stated that they had a stent placed in 2008 following a heart attack. What is the risk of that stent becoming blocked in the future now that we're over 10 years out? Dr. Teixeira? Uh, I've John started with that one first. It's more <laughs> up his alley. Uh, yeah, I can, I can take that one. I can right. take that one. So, uh, you know, stent technology has improved and definitely in 2008, you're more than likely had one of the, what we call drug eluding stents that reduced the risk of recurrent stenosis and, you know, blood clots forming in the stents and so on. And so, you know, we really look out at, you know, at say five years, 20% of folks will have re-narrowing in their stent. If you made it out to 10 years or if it's 2008, we're now at 12 years, um, and you're feeling good and you're not having symptoms, likelihood is that that stent's doing okay. And I've seen stents that were placed even 2003, 2004, and they're just fine. Um, and so it's very individual to the, to the, uh, to the patient and uh, to how you're living your life. Did you change your diet? Are you exercising? Are you taking your medications? And that also helps determine how long stents will last. Every time I put a stent in, 
I tell a patient, it's just like you bought a new car. Now you got to take care of it. You got to change the oil. Um, you got to wash it. And that's, you know, analogous to uh, eating right, uh, taking your medications, exercising, doing the things you're supposed to do. All right. Yeah, Pat? I just want to can I add something? Please. Yeah, uh, you know, once we're done with that, obviously, uh, uh, lifestyle medicine will go a long way in preventing uh, another event and actually reversing uh, disease process that's already there. And it has been demonstrated a long time ago by Dr. Dean Ornish and others, and actually Dr. Esselstyn at Cleveland Clinic has done a wonderful job in <clears throat> treating patients who were deemed inoperable and just with lifestyle uh, changes, uh, make them live a long life and uh, eliminate the symptoms, the angina, the claudication, uh, and so on. Uh, so we cannot forget that, and it's extremely, extremely important. We're talking about, you know, moving more towards a whole food plant-based diet. We talk about exercise. We talk about the importance of sleep. We talk talking about the importance of uh, limiting stress. And we are also talking about the importance of uh, social connections and networks, also very important. Your, your family, your friends, uh, this is all things that help you uh, live better and live longer. Excellent. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't do at least a few of the questions here related with COVID, because that's definitely top of mind. And we know uh, that pre-existing conditions can increase the risk. Uh, what heart pre-existing conditions uh, are worrisome for patients for their increased risk of death with COVID? Okay. I mean, old age, uh, you know, cardiac risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, you know, prior uh, heart disease, coronary artery disease, prior heart attacks, uh, obesity, they're all risks for uh, having a poor outcome. And it's actually, uh, race actually does not play a role on it. Uh, the fact that, uh, uh, that uh, African-Americans, for instance, had bad outcomes is just because they had more uh, risk factors due to the you know, so-called you know, standard American diet, the Southern diet. Uh, it's not really genetic. Uh, so that's really important. One aspect that I want to emphasize that I think it's very, very important is because if you're having symptoms that suggest that you're having a heart attack, don't stay home because of the COVID. Uh, hospitals and facilities will still take care of you and you're doing a disservice to yourself if you uh, avoid or not seek immediate help, because again, if you're having unstable angina or even a heart attack, as we talked before and John talked about it, you know, time is muscle. All right, excellent. It is very, very important. Having said that, uh, COVID can still affect the heart. It could cause congestive heart failure. It can cause arrhythmias as well. And you know, we could talk about that more if we have time. So, all right. Well, why, why is that? Unfortunately, we have 30 seconds left here. So, I'm going to end with this. Have either of you received your COVID vaccine, and would you recommend it for your patients? Yes, I did my first dose, and highly recommend. Excellent. What about you, Dr. Wagner? Same as well. I received both my first and second. And if you, uh, if it's your time to get it, please get it. Don't wait. Very important.
Excellent. And I received it as well. So now for the answer to tonight's Prairie Doc quiz question. The benefit of cardiac rehab is A, physical, B, emotional, or C, both? The answer is, of course, C. Cardiac rehab has positive effects on both the physical and emotional health of a patient. The winner of tonight's quiz is Wilma Tagler from Hitchcock, South Dakota. Thank you, Wilma, for participating. A book will be in the mail soon. We'll be right back after this. Have you heard? The Prairie Doc has a podcast. Listen to Prairie Doc Radio and On Call with the Prairie Doc wherever you get your podcasts. These programs feature physicians and other health professionals discussing various medical topics important to you and your family. Look for Prairie Doc on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. The Prairie Doc Podcast. Stay healthy out there, people. One definition of the word murmur is to express one's discontent in a subdued manner. So it makes sense that a heart murmur is often a soft-spoken signal that something may be going on in the heart. The heart does not always shout to get our attention like it does with a heart attack. Sometimes it quietly whispers to those who would listen that there might be an issue. The murmur itself is not the problem, rather, the murmur is telling us to look for one. Some murmurs are called innocent or benign. These are murmurs when the heart is normal, but the blood is flowing rapidly over the valves, which causes a sound. About 40 to 45% of children will have a murmur at some point in their life. No treatment is needed for these murmurs, and children will often outgrow them. But up to 10% of them do persist into adulthood. Murmurs that indicate more serious issues are often associated with valve disorders in the heart. The valves are the areas that open when the chamber of the heart beats and close when the heart is between beats to allow the chambers to relax and fill with blood. Sometimes a valve does not fully close or will bloom backwards and allow blood to backflow across the valve. This backflow causes a murmur. This is called valve prolapse and can lead to blood regurgitation or regurge, which requires medical attention. A different type of murmur is caused by mitral or aortic valve stenosis. Stenosis is when the valve does not fully open, so the same amount of blood is forcing itself through a narrower opening in the same amount of time than it does in a normal valve. That extra pressure causes the murmur because the heart must work harder to push the blood through this valve. Over time, if this is untreated, it can lead to damage of the heart muscles. The most common murmur is aortic sclerosis, and this happens when the aortic valve develops scarring or stiffening or thickening. This can occur with age or after infection, such as rheumatic fever or endocarditis. This is not dangerous by itself, but if it progresses to stenosis, it can be cause for concern. Often when the doctor hears a murmur, we may want to get a better look with a special ultrasound called an echocardiogram to see if we can find the cause of the noise. Once the cause is found, a follow-up plan can be made. When the heart whispers, we must always listen. By doing so, we may avoid further discontent forcing the heart to raise its voice over a larger problem. 
A big thank you to our guests, uh, Josie and John, for volunteering their time and helping thank us learn so more about us. the sounds of the heart. If you would like more information about this program or to see or hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc on Call, wherever you get your podcasts. That does it for tonight. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Duck, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. In an age where people may pick their pronouns, we still struggle with the cultural perspective of those who question their gender role, gender dysphoria. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Duck. So, Mom, it's 20 years ago now that you and Dad uh, started this idea of uh, evidence-based medical shows for free for everyone. Does that sound right? That's right. And it was really great that you and, and your dad were able to create that theme music for us. Yeah, that was really cool. Making music with Dad, one of the best things. You know, I, as long as I can remember, you and Dad were pouring your energy and your heart and your soul into, into the Prairie Dock and into the Healing Words Foundation. And I'm just really proud of you. It's great to have people of your generation, like our new Prairie Docs, to uh, give us your ideas and to help continue Dad's legacy. It's our turn to uh, turn to the people out there and say, we need your help. <laughs> you can support us too. Uh, we do this without advertisements from pharmaceutical companies, and we need independent support. So go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today. And uh, if you don't have money for that, keep coming to see our show. We need your support in other ways. Thanks. Thanks. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, South Dakota Foundation for Medical Care, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Aberdeen District Medical Society, Urology Specialists, Orthopedic Institute, Physicians Care Sanford Clinic Community Service Committee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications. <laughs>